The views and opinions expressed on the 10-8 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. They do not necessarily reflect an official policy or position. The 10-8 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Welcome to the latest episode of the 108 podcast. Today's episode is titled Life is Weird. <laughs> I think it's uh definitely accurate and fitting. You, you know, you ever sit there and you listen to people's conversations or you hear someone talk and you know, you, you hear them talk about how the human brain works and then you kind of get into this weird existential crisis like you feel like someone looking in on your moment in life. Maybe not, maybe it's just me, but it is crazy that we human beings, are the only animals that we know of that are so self-aware. Not only are we self-aware, but we are beyond that, to the point of where we perform our own psychoanalysis and we figure out why we act and think the way we act and think. And that's why I can never truly be a nihilist. Like, yeah, I mean, I can get into a bitchy mood and my good old cynicism comes back, but I truly love the human experience and the human condition. But my my plan for the intro today is not that. I'm not going to go big brain on that. I, I don't have uh, Joe Rogan's mushroom tea to kind of get me there. But I am going to go a little deep. So I'm not this big religious guy. Uh, so what I'm about to say, don't be offended if you are religious. Um, because if you are religious, regardless of what religion you have your own faith for or your belief in, anybody has an idea of what's going on with their life. Now, as I said, I'm not religious, I'm not really all that spiritual, but what I am is a very big cause and effect guy. I personally believe that when one thing happens or when you make a decision, several different options and paths will appear in your life, literally, figuratively, whatever. And this is just going to keep going and going and it keeps branching out and branching out and so on and so forth. It kind of reminds me of the uh, books I read as a kid where, you know, you read it and it says like, oh, what are you going to do next? Are you going to turn left on the path? If so, turn to page 65. Or are you going to turn right? Then turn to page 95 and whatever. Um, And somehow I always picked the option that I was going to get murdered, kidnapped or killed. Weird. Weird books to read as a second grader, but that's that's a different story for a different time. But basically, this is my uh, very basic understanding of chaos theory. I'm not a very smart man. I'm not a very scientific or mathematical man, but that at least is my understanding of it. You know, in my life, in my personal life, in the past few weeks, I've had some opportunities come up 
in multiple different avenues of my life, personal or professional, and it really came up all at once. And to me, it was like a sign. You know, when um, we're going to go back to like a, a video game analogy, when you're playing a video game and you level up, um, you know, you get all these new quests, you get these new skills and everything like that. And that's what it felt like happened a few weeks ago. And it's nerve wracking to me because, you know, I want to make the right decision. Um, and I want the right decision as in it's going to have the best chance for success and happiness. And it is always a difficult choice. You know, I used to be this very impulsive decision maker. My decision to go to college, um, I initially made that decision because I had this really super amazing tour, um, and that was it. You know, I enjoyed myself, and that's it. I didn't really factor in tuition price, how I was going to pay for it, the distance away from home, nothing like that. It was just the instant, wow, this feels really nice to be here, I'm going to go here, and then I applied and got in. Um, and it didn't really work out for me because I got kicked out my sophomore year because I couldn't afford to go. Uh, but now we look at new options, right? I have all these new options that I said, and I'm very confident and happy with the decisions I've ended up making. And I took a lot of time to stop and sit and think about things and, and make sure that I was making the right decision for myself, my future and, and so on. And I know a lot of us in this profession are currently facing a lot of similar crossroads, um, when I started making this episode, it was before the current situation going on in the news. And what I just said is going to be the last thing I say about it. It is not my place to talk about it. Um, so that's that. But what I do want to say is don't do anything on impulse. Whenever I get upset, um, I always take a day or two to make sure my reaction is not emotional. And I really hope everyone is kind of thinking that, you know, cool down a little bit and continue to make wise and conscious decisions. Um, just be sure to think everything out. That's really what I want to say. I'm a chronic overthinker. I went from being impulsive to an overthinker and there was like no room in between, but I'm trying to get there now. Um, you know, so just try to think everything out before you make any decision is really what I want to talk about today. Uh, that's really what I want to say about it. Um, and we're going to go right into my interview today. My guest today, this week is is Chief Daniel Smith. He's from Louisiana. He is 30 years old. And yes, I said chief. He's been a cop for 12 years and he is the chief of a police department in Louisiana. He also has some experience in narcotics and canine and things like that. And a lot of, I know everybody right now is like, wait, 30 years old and he's the chief of police. Yes. Uh, it's very interesting. Unheard of for me personally, but you know, he's got a lot of good and quality thoughts and opinions that you're going to enjoy. And I think, you know what? We all think of the person at the top, the big chair, whoever it is, whether we're talking about a chief of police, a business CEO, politicians, we always think of like, you know, the old guy in the room, right? The guy that has been there, deserves to be there because of his age, not necessarily his accomplishments. And, you know, we always envision them to be out of touch. You know, you can talk about our current election. But I will say that there is such a nice and refreshing resurgence of youth leadership in America. And I think it's because the system has let us down. Right now, as I'm saying these words, my mind is going to politics. And I'm thinking of all these young and um, verbose yeah, I think that's a good word. 
individuals in Congress right now, um, the ones that are coming to my mind are, are particularly Republican, though the Democrats have them too. And for the record, I am right down the middle of the aisle, so I'm not leaning one way or another. But it's good. I think we've all decided that the system of, hey, just letting the old guy get to the top has not worked out well for us. And we're trying to change things. And obviously, listen, you want to look at and we're um, Daniel Smith and I are going to talk about this in just a second. America's in a very interesting transitional period right now. If you haven't noticed it, it's definitely happening. The transition is not going to come from this administration with the Bidens. It's just not happening. Um, but it is a vast, swift and decisive change that's coming to America. And I don't know. It's. Little terrifying, but you know, I think we'll all get through it anyway. Um, enough of that again. I'm not getting political with this, so sit down, relax, open your ears, shut your mouth. Here comes my interview with Daniel Smith. Me and Carl feel the same, too much pleasure is pain. Michael spice me in vain. All I do is complain. She needs something to change, need to take off the edge. So, fuck it all tonight. And don't tell me to shut up When you know you talk too much And you don't have shit to say I want you out of my head I want you out of my bedroom tonight There's no way I can save you Cause I need to be safe too I'm no good at goodbye We're both acting insane But you're starting to change Now I'm drinking again My name is Daniel Smith. I am currently a police chief in uh, central Louisiana in a relatively small town of about 1,500 people. I was elected police chief in 2019. I've been here since. I have about 12 years in law enforcement. Uh, it began around the year 2009. Uh, at 18 years old, I was offered an opportunity to work for the local sheriff's office where I grew up. I spent about three years there and moved to a slightly larger area, worked in the city there for probably three years. Uh, at the age of 22, I obtained my first supervisor position. I became a sergeant at that police department. I uh, worked there, ended up working investigations there. Uh, brought onto a narcotics task force, uh, developed a love for working narcotics, probably about a three year stint there, including the task force training and all that. Uh, I was trained on SWAT, SRT, some of the uh, tactical divisions I was able to be a part of and train with. And then I moved to the area where I'm at now, uh, Louisiana, I'm calling parishes. I'm in I uh, worked for the parish here for a few years. Uh, I was hired here in 2014 to work for the parish, and I spent a few years there. I worked a little narcotics. I worked as a canine officer. I got experience working canine. That was, that was pretty awesome. And then uh, after a few years, I was talked into running for police chief by some of the uh, local individuals that had concerns and want to see some fresh blood come in office. Nice. So uh, welcome to the 10-8 podcast. Very, uh, very excited to have you on here. I've, I've kind of been following you on Instagram for quite a, quite a minute now. Um, 
actually you were on a different podcast and that's how I got turned on to, to even, you know, that's how I learned about you. So welcome. And uh, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. So your story, I mean, just based on the very little bit that, that you just shared with us is a lot, I don't know, different, consolidated. I don't know. A lot of the things that, and the experiences that you've talked about, a lot of guys with 15 years on have done like a fifth of that. So it's just very interesting. Um, so let's talk what we're going to start in the beginning. How, what was your upbringing? Like, were you in a police family? Were you in a military family? What, how, how did your story start? Well, honestly, my family didn't really have uh, any structure, no law enforcement background, no military. Uh, my dad was a logger when I was growing up. He drove a log mm-hmm. truck. He worked for different people, had his own at one point. Uh, we were what you would call a low-income family. We didn't have a tremendous amount of, you know, just valuable things. Uh, you know, always had old kind of used vehicles, broke down all the time. Uh, kind of your basic story of, you know, homes repossessed and that type of deal. Uh, I wasn't exposed to anything just terrible as a child, but I, I did have a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins that, you know, were on drugs. I just didn't know it at the time. And then, uh, you know, we, I know we lost our home one time when I was a teenager and I lived with grandparents in a government housing for a little while. So I was able to experience a few things there that I hadn't previously seen and that not everybody gets to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did, my, both my parents had Christian beliefs and values. So, you know, I, I followed them in that and we're all extremely close now, of course, but, uh, I got in a little bit of trouble, nothing serious. Uh, definitely didn't get caught with about 90% of what I did that probably would have been terrible, uh, in right. my early ages, but I was, you know, experiment with different things, had friends I shouldn't have had, uh, around the age 16. And then I had a buddy that kind of became a mentor to me. I met when I was 17 and he was in law enforcement. And, uh, the first night I rode with him was actually uh, when he caught me doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And he just kind of put me in a vehicle with him. And, you know, we took a ride and I actually became a reserve officer. Uh, a couple weeks later, while I was a senior in high school, he was able to pull enough strings to where when I turned 18, I was able to get in with him and go uh, just kind of see what the job was about. And I fell in love with it. I mean, that mm-hmm. was where I developed a passion for it. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a good story as far as, you know, upbringing and kind of going the wrong way. And then, then you meet this guy at the age 16 and it kind of turned everything around. Um, What was it about law enforcement that really drove you to wanting to become, you know, one of us, so to speak? Right. Well, it was my childhood played a big role in it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not from any kind of abuse, torment, or anything like that. It was the perspective that I wanted better for my family. My kids always anticipated having a you know a large family and people to provide for, and I knew how hard my dad worked, you know, just to keep what we had. And it would be kind of a daylight to dark. Seemed like every day of the week he was gone, and you know, having to work and really struggled. So. I needed something that I knew would be dependable, something that wasn't, you know, seasonal like logging was. Uh, I learned about benefits early on. You know, I learned that it was important to 
have the health insurance to have some form of retirement because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of the, the gold standard for us. We want to reach retirement and have a suitable retirement that helps us out in the long run. Uh, but law enforcement was actually a second option for me uh, because initially the military was going to be my pick. Okay. Okay. Uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to make a career out of it or not, but when I was 17, I went to uh, to the MEPS, local MEPS, and uh, they tested me and everything was fine that day. And then before I could get a basic training for uh, what was going to be the National Guard, I got tested three or four times, and each time had extremely high blood pressure. They were kind of doing physical for me to see if I was going to be fit to go. And I had blood pressure problems and, you know, it was a, it's a genetic trait, but also at the time didn't take care of myself at all. I was 17 years old. I was probably 80, between 70 and 80 pounds heavier than I am right now. Mm-hmm. So, wow. you know, the, the, the physical fitness aspect was, was terrible and was something that I actually didn't fix at the time. Uh, I wasn't motivated to, I was, had the mindset of, uh, I'm just going to try something else because that didn't work. And, uh, you know, I would have, I'm sure, ended up in a completely different place. And I'm very blessed and grateful for where I'm at, but it actually wasn't my first option. Uh, some form of service was, you know, where I was headed, and I knew that, but military was going to be my first pick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it kind of comes down to everything happens for a reason. There's always, you know, a, a right. plan or a path out there. So, I mean, obviously it's worked out well for you so far. So, you know. Can't be uh, too upset about that. And, you know, one of the things you talked about as far as physical fitness, you know, um, I was looking on your Instagram, you show all the time, like your transition and, and your transformation and everything. And it's, it's very, uh, very motivating and, and just, um, yeah, I think motivating is the word I'm looking for. So what, what was it that made you decide to choose the path of fitness? Cause you're also a certified fitness trainer as well, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I got certified as a fitness trainer and a nutritionist a few years ago just to uh, help myself help other people. I mean, I, I had my body figured out as far as what I needed to get to uh, point A to point B. Basically, if I had a goal in mind, I know that I can smash it within, you know, just whatever time frame I give myself. But I want to be able to help other people. And, you know, as well as I do, uh, certifications are something that people look at more than experience sometimes. So uh, I was kind of working with some local gyms and helping people out. I was doing boot camps uh, Mm -hmm. for kids and everyone else. But my inspiration for fitness actually began uh, probably a year and a half into law enforcement. There was some discrepancies at the time with the police academy. And the first time that I went to the police academy, I actually didn't qualify. I wasn't able to get into the academy because of my physical fitness level. Okay. So with law enforcement being my second option already, and by this time I had worked for a while and, you know, I knew it was where I wanted to be. Um, I made the decision that I was going to do whatever it took to get there. I was going to defy whatever genetic issues I had. I was going to defy, you know, my family telling me that, you know, try something else something you can make more money doing, you know, family and friends kind of, you know, they would inspire me to basically seek other avenues because I was about to, you know, really burden myself trying mm-hmm. to get in shape, 
for something that I wasn't really making much money doing at the time. Yeah, for sure. It makes sense. So uh, one of the things I want to touch on, and I've touched on it before, is, you know, law enforcement, especially with shift work and, and not having the best options uh, in the middle of the night or throughout your shift or having time to eat. What are some, I don't know, fitness or nutrition cornerstones or just things to keep in mind for people that might be listening, working the road, who are having trouble balancing work life, nutrition life? Uh, physical fitness, physical activity. How would you recommend they they stay on top of that? It's tough, man. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, I thought it was bad when I was working night shift for about nine years, and of course, not all of those. I was in physical fitness, but the last several, uh, you know, I thought it would be tough to fix a diet plan and and get a good training regimen going, have time to do it all while you know, working a night shift, but then, uh, you know, having kids and that type of thing really, you know, adds, adds some stress to that part of it. But, you know, if, if you're working night shift, it's, it's not really a good deal because it messes with your metabolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your body doesn't naturally stay up all night. Mine feels like it does even to this day. And I've been away from it for a few years but your body, you know, goes through some changes whenever you start working a night shift. And then you have some rotating shifts where you go days and nights. And to me, it's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's almost, you know, it feels like it's almost impossible to have a normal schedule on your time off. But um, I got into a habit of kind of fixing my own meals. Uh, when I worked, you know, I'd bring like a lunchbox, like I was going to school or something. Basically, mm-hmm. I would cook. Uh, I mean, when I lived by myself and. I you know, had all the time in the world and I cook whatever I wanted to. And back then I would eat just for nutrition, basically. But I would fix three to four meals just like I would be eating if I was up in the middle of the day. You know, I would have like a baked chicken with a side, you know, and I would have like a snack between and that type of thing. And I would fix the meals and bring them with me to work because, you know, you'll learn anywhere that you work. If it's a night shift, you're going to have like hot dogs in a hot box and you're mm-hmm. going to have, you know, like little Debbie cakes and you're going to have limited options at night, especially when you get to like the two to four or five o'clock in the morning range. Right. And then what happens is sometimes you'll starve yourself all night. And then in the morning, uh, there'll be a restaurant opening up. So you'll have a nice carb loaded meal before you go home sometimes because you starved all night and seen that place is opening light came on before you went home and, you know, then you have just a terrible meal. Um, but you know, I went from that, from kind of the meal prepping deal to where I would do like, uh, a couple of heavy meals early in the shift before midnight and if I was working like till five or six a.m., I would just snack about once every hour for the last few hours that I was out, so that I didn't go home hungry. Because if I went home hungry, it was game over. I was about to make something big at home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I didn't need to eat, and then it was going to keep me up longer, and you know it was going to mess all that up. Uh, but you know, honestly, uh, the biggest part is to decide, especially with the with the physical training part, you have to decide what's important to you. Uh, you have to decide how important health, nutrition, and fitness is uh, to you, to your family. Um, you have to make a decision to 
delegate a significant amount of time to it. If it's something, you know, if you have goals to reach or if you just want to stay in good enough shape to make sure you're going to survive the next fight, you have to set aside time for it because it's important. I mean, it truly is. There's uh, I'm not saying get there and lift weights every day, but just, you know, keeping a little bit of cardiovascular endurance, uh, being able to breathe, being able to, you know, breathe under certain pressure, tactical breathing, you know, any any aspect of fitness or level of fitness is you know, it, it, it counts on breathing and law enforcement the same way, the tunnel vision and all that type of stuff, you know, has roles in in physical fitness and you can train your mind and your body at the same time. So it's important to, you know, reach whatever level you need to reach for your job. So that's, you know, part of what should make your decision to uh, set aside that time significant. it's huge yeah absolutely i think you know you see all the time and and police departments or videos on the internet which i don't like to watch but you know they're out there where you you look at these squads and these these people or the people that you work with and it's like you know people not taking care of themselves and it's like listen if you don't want to take care of yourself that's one thing but if you're going to be my backup you, you need to show up. You know what I mean? If, if, if I'm getting, you know, my snot rocked in, I need you to show up and save my life. And if you're, Absolutely. if you're not physically fit, you know what, you at least need to have some baseline of it. I'm not saying I'm Mr. Olympia or anything, but you need to at least be comfortable in your body and know that if the fight is on, I'm going to be able to at least show up. That's right. What about, do you partake in any like uh Brazilian jujitsu or anything like that? Man, uh, I've done a little bit of training. When I say a little bit, I mean bare minimum, not enough to brag about. Uh, but, you know, as part of my cardio regimen, I do like to do a little bit of boxing. Okay. Uh, you know, I've got a bag, some gloves. Every once in a while, I'll find somebody to spar. Uh, I mean, it don't help just a tremendous amount, you know, as far as you know, learning and adapting, you know, we do our SSGT and PPCT and all that, you know, for our defensive tactics stuff with Mm -hmm. law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I believe that you need to have a certain level of cardiovascular endurance as far as, you know, keeping everything up. If you do end up in some kind of fight and you know, as well as I do that no matter what form of fight you're doing, uh, you know, a hand to hand combat, street fight is going to be different than anything you're training for. Oh yeah, absolutely. You don't, you don't know what to expect out of the other person. So you just, you know, the most important part of it is to make sure that you don't run out of breath before the other person does or the other people. Right. Exactly. So that's where you're, what you're saying with a strong cardiovascular base is so important because if you don't have the endurance, then you're going to lose the fight. It doesn't matter what tactics, you know, what moves, you know, it kind of comes down to confidence and being able to withstand however long the fight is. And I remember when I was in training and, you know, they were always saying like, be prepared to last in a three minute fight. And you never realize how long three minutes really is no. and until it's, it's on. And I've never been in a three minute long fight, but I know that in these scraps that I've been in, it feels like it's been 10 minutes and it's only been, right. you know, less than a minute. So you're, you're absolutely right with all that. Yes. Time adds up really quick. For sure. And I'm sure in some of the counties or some of the cities you've worked in, in Louisiana, you know, your backup's probably more than 
three minutes away. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's here, it, you know, it, it varies, but there are times of the day and night when it could be a 20 to 25 minute delay for some reason. You know, and it's just part of part of the whole rule policing thing. But you know, it's it's what we sign up for and what yeah. we're gonna do. Yeah, absolutely. But it's you know, I'm sure a lot of people because they they message me on Instagram a lot. They're like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about going to a you know a small agency. I don't have to worry about the big city problems. I'm like, that's good and all, but you better be sound tactically. You better be squared away because when it hits the fan. You are it. You are your own backup. Like you better right. be able to take care of yourself. So that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, and I think that's a lot of what people misunderstand or they don't really take into account. They're thinking, Oh, you know, I'll just deal with, you know, whatever rural uh, police officers might have to deal with. Right. And, you know, I've, I've been, you know, involved with small and large agencies. And I would say that, you know, each have their benefits and their downfalls. Um, but, you know, large agencies, you have the backup, but, you know, almost as important as the backup sometimes is your rank structure. That's true. Um, you know, as I wasn't, you know, I was four years into law enforcement when I was given a supervisor position as sergeant mm-hmm. of patrol, you know, and I only had a few guys under me. but I was making decisions. I was making the call. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the big dog, you know, for a entire night shift. And, you know, departments with several hundred men and women, they don't have that. No. You know, you, you don't have to make the final call or the final say on things. You don't have to be your own internal affairs investigator. You don't have to worry about so many of the things that you have to worry about in a small department. Mm-hmm. That's very you know, true. And then you've got, you know, the backup enforcers. You know, there's times when I would say that I miss, you know, at one time I worked for an agency and I remember there being about 35 to 40 police vehicles involved in a pursuit that I was in mm-hmm. that went probably 30 minutes or so. And it's, man, it's, I mean, it's so cool to have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When here, you know, I've been in car chases that lasted upwards of 30 to 45 minutes and there end up being two or three of us by the time it's over with Mm -hmm. just because it's all we have in the general area where we're at, you know, and we basically have to call in other parish or, you know, what you would call a county in uh, to assist us if it's just that bad. So, you know, backups are crucial things. So that's why one of the reasons why I've always been, you know, so inspired to make sure that, I'm going to last longer than, you know, whoever it is that I end up having to get in a brawl with because, and it makes it, you know, even more significant to be proficient with, you know, not only your firearm, but your less lethal weapons and things like that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, most of the time, if you have to use them, you've got one shot. You've got yeah. one time to use a taser. You've got one time to make sure the spray hits them. You know, if you're close enough, spray them and they're approaching you know, if you go hand to hand, then you better make sure that you've got as much fight in you as you could possibly pull out. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a significant difference, you know. And then I would say another part, uh, you know, of the thing that people look at if they want to go from large to small is they look at obviously the call volume. They're like, you know, I don't have to go from call to call at a small agency. I don't have to, you know, have 35 reports to do at the end of the night because I'm able to you know, take this one or take that one and, you know, 
a large portion of our calls are going to be stuff that's, you know, a small report, if any report at all. But then you get the issue of major crimes Mm -hmm. and there's no place that I've been a part of that's exempt from major crimes. Right. You know, your, your homicides, your, you know, serious rapes and things like that. So though it's not as frequent, you don't see it as much. If you are a basic patrol officer at a very small agency, you're likely to have to work it from beginning to end with only consultation from, you know, maybe an investigator at another department or the department you work for. Uh, but, you know, usually uh, they, what they call it, they say, that's your baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you, you catch it, you clean it, that type of deal. Uh, you know, and I've, as a young officer, I remember having a, you know, work my first homicide case turned out to be a kidnapping slash homicide slash this and that. And, you know, I just freaked me out. Mm-hmm, I wouldn't end. Sure. I wouldn't. I was, I was just a couple of years in before I actually had my own homicide case and there was no training at police academy. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Right. Yeah. There was, you learn, you learn bare minimum there. It's, uh, you learn enough to not get sued. Mm hmm. You know, and and that type of deal. So, I mean, it's different. It's it's way different. They both have good, bad, and society changes. You know, have changed the way both of them operate too. So, yeah, I was. It's really interesting you just said that because I had this conversation with my coworkers, and we were talking about we work for like a medium sized agency. We do have specialized units and it almost comes to the point where the patrol officers become too reliant on the existence of specialized units. So, you know, they don't take the ownership of the calls or the problems in their area. And it's like, Oh, well, you know, if there's a, if there's a high, uh, high level crime, Oh, well we have detectives for that. Or if there's a, you know, drug dealer or a drug problem. Oh, well we've got, we've got jump out boys for that. Like, I'm kind of in your mindset where it's like, no, like it's, it's your zone. Take, you know, take it as far as you can. You know, I mean, obviously we hire detectives, so, you know, they obviously need the work anyway, but there's no reason why in the middle of your shift, if you have the time and it's, you know, appropriate, go and do some follow-up, try to see what you can do to make the detective's job easier. And then you learn so that when you are in that hot seat and you have to work a homicide, you know, in the middle of the night, you have an idea of at least where to go. Um, but that's right. some things that I've never really thought about is like being a couple of years on and having to work a homicide from beginning to end. Cause I've kind of been in that mindset where, Oh, well there's a detective. They're going to do all the follow up and they're going to get all this only now. And I'm six years in, have I learned how to do the bulk of what a detective does? But if you would have told me straight out the gate, Hey, you know, you're going to have to go write a subpoena for that guy's phone. What? I don't even know. I I don't even know what these words mean. So that's pretty interesting that you were exposed to all that. What was, so when you were first, when you first became a supervisor, what were, what was kind of the structure of your night shift? Was it mostly senior guys, mostly newer guys? You know, it seems like my whole career as a supervisor, my career in general, I've always had uh, men and women work for me that was uh, older than me. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, until I think this year, this year I hired the first person that's ever worked for me as a supervisor or a police chief that was 
actually younger than me. Uh, that was something that just had to happen. It was, <laughs> you know, it was killing me. Uh, but, you know, the ones that everyone that went through my shift whenever I was the sergeant at that department was uh, significantly older than me and also had more experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of them had been at the agency longer. Some of them had been in and out of that agency and other agencies. And, but I, I was the least experienced at the department at the time that I was supervisor. So how did they react to having someone with less experience and younger than them be their supervisor, be their boss? Well, honestly, and even up to this point in my career as a supervisor, I would lead by example. Um, I've never had any expectation that someone that's done the job longer than I have, you know, would need a tremendous amount of guidance. Mm-hmm. There would be times, you know, and I've had to take disciplinary action and things like that, but, and it's kind of few and far between. <laughs> but one thing that I've always strived to do was to do the job of everyone that works for me, uh, potentially better than they can. That's the goal is mm-hmm. to, you know, if I ask them to do this, I'm going to do that times two mm-hmm. or attempt to, you know, or make my best attempt. Uh, since I've had the role that I have now as police chief, I have made more arrests than anyone in the department each year. Oh, wow. That's police chief. Mm-hmm. I still work the road. I still work narcotics. I still do investigations. Uh, I take patrol calls, you know, whatever it takes, whatever needs to be done. But as a sergeant, I would always, you know, strive to, you know, take whatever statistics that I'm wanting to get for the team and, you know, play a significant role in reaching those numbers. You know, if it's a numerical figure, if it's a crime solved figure, you know, whatever the figure is, I'm, I'm contributing as much as I possibly can. And honestly never had any conflict, you know, as a leader with those underneath me being, you know, more elder or having more experience. I really never ran into a conflict there. And as a supervisor and you're taking these steps to, you know, obviously be one of the boots on the ground and you're still making arrests and everything. How has that translated from uh, those who were subordinate to you? Have they responded to that? Absolutely. I, I feel like it's enabled me to gain a significant amount of respect from the subordinates. Uh, we've had, um, great success in the department since I've been in the role that I'm in now. Uh, I actually, it's an elected position. I didn't know if you knew that or not, mm-hmm. but I was elected into uh, 2000, it was 2018 for the election. Now I took office January 1st of 19, just to clarify that. But uh, the department was slightly different prior to me taking it over. There was a drug problem that didn't receive you know, hardly any attention uh, from the PD for that. And, you know, the first year, I would say the first, I think the first two months from the statistical figure that I've seen uh, for felony narcotic arrest, I think I made more in two months than they had in like the previous few years combined. Mm. Uh, I can't remember exactly how I added up, but my first, you know, by myself, yes, I came in, you know, ready for it. And I knew what I was looking at from having worked the area before. Uh, but it was kind of one of those deals where I worked for the sheriff's office and, you know, we didn't just come in and stomp on the towns or anything. Right. Right. They took care of their problems. We backed them up vice versa. So 
you know, I come in, knew what I was looking at. I already knew the people. Mm -hmm. I knew what the problems were. So, you know, I come in setting an example. And uh, I did have almost the same exact staff that was there with a different administrator. And statistics increased, you know, with the same staff that was there before. Uh, so, you know, I've done my best to provide incentive for them to work harder by, you know, performing the job myself. Mm -hmm. And what kind of incentives, what kind of incentives did you provide or what, what did you kind of, what did you do to entice them to want to do better? Well, honestly, uh, you know, the role that I'm in now, the previous administrator would, you know, he, he took more time off than I did. Uh, so it made some of those guys have to work a lot more, you know, and they, they took care of more investigations. Uh, the number two guy was basically the investigator most of the time. And I kind of took control of the investigations, took a lot of weight off of him so that he was able to work, you know, more traffic, which is kind of whatever he needed to do on a shift. There's a lot more stress involved in the jobs of everyone that's underneath me compared to the previous administrator. You know, there wasn't there wasn't much delegated to the role of police chief, you know, and you see that in a lot of departments, you know, a lot of times number twos got much more significant of a job than number one does. Right, right. Where number uh, one is usually just like a figurehead, you know, roll them out. For a figurehead of, you know, the guy that's there to get elected every four years mm -hmm. and the guy that stays appointed, you know, and keeps the mayor's office happy and that type of deal. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm not a politician. I have been called a politician just because of, you know, where I've landed. And I did oppose an incumbent, you know, and mm -hmm. win an election. And at the time, I was, you know, unmarried with a child. And I'm telling you, just an uphill battle the whole time. Right. But, uh, oh, yes, it was, man, it was something else. Elections are, they're no fun. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, can't wait for the next one. Yeah. <laughs> so since you're a supervisor or since you've been a supervisor for so long, now you're in, in you know, the top dog, big chair. What do you see or what kind of advice could you give to other supervisors starting from line supervision all the way up to keep their squad and, and their their people's morale high? Because obviously right now, law enforcement morale is probably about as low as it could possibly get. What do we do to build it back up? I'll tell you, this is a... This is a complicated deal. You know, what I tell you today would be different than what I told you this time last year. And yeah. that would have been different than the year before because mm -hmm. this time last year was pure chaos beginning, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, I mean, honestly, it's as crazy as it may sound. We have to change with the times. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, you know, we have to adapt to the structure of the world and, you know, find ways to fit in. Uh I've became a big proponent of community policing. You know, I, I get out of schools all the time. If, if I see kids playing basketball on the court, I get out and play with them. But as far as a leader, uh, you know, to your subordinates, like if you're a, a line sergeant or, you know, something of that nature, you, you have to get out there with them. Uh, you've got to make them feel like you're part of the team because a lot of times supervisor will – you know, separate themselves from the team uh, and not at all acknowledge what's going on with them. If they have problems, if they need to talk, I mean, 
you know, offering an open ear to somebody and not making them feel like you're I coming mm-hmm. after them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's a great deal as a leader uh, because we struggle. You know, we struggle at home. You know, we try not to bring it to work. That's not always the case. But then, you know, we struggle with calls. We struggle with things that we see, things we're a part of. And as a leader, it's up to you to be close enough to your team to identify when they have problems. I have, you know, my men, if I know something's bothering them, we're going to talk about it or they're going to talk about it. You know, if it's not with me, it's going to be with somebody. But you have to know your team well enough to know when they have problems. If you're a sergeant, you know, you've probably got, a, you know, some people under you, but you don't have so many people that you can't identify when they're having issues. You know, if you're around them enough, if you're a part of their conversations, uh, because it becomes a problem whenever they don't feel like they're free to communicate to you or around you. You know, if they're not going to say this joke because Sarge is in the room when they would normally say it and it's not against some type of, you know, department policy, then, you know, you've got a problem on your hands. Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing to me is to communicate, but also be someone that they look at that's open to communication. Uh, make sure, make sure that, make sure that, you know, they're in a mindset to where they can tell you what's going on with them, good or bad. And that you'll point them in the right direction, mm-hmm. you know, because I've, I've had supervisors that, uh, you know, I feel like if I said just the wrong thing to them on any given night, they're going to blow up. You know, if I tell them I did something I probably wasn't supposed to do, and I know they're going to just immediately pitch a fit, call the next rank up. You know, and I understand going up the line or up the structure, but, you know, you've got to you've got to be the boss that they can talk to. Because if they can't talk to you or they don't feel like they can talk to you, the problems can get a lot worse before they're identified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, we can kind of translate that into just personal life. Like if you have, if you don't have somebody in your life that you can't open up to and speak freely to, then whatever problem you're dealing with is going to get bottled up and fester and so on. And that can be that entire analogy can go work and beyond. And it, it ultimately will have the same result. So that's, right. that's really good. I like that you put that out there. Um, so on the flip side, you know, you said you just hired someone younger. What do we do? If, if someone's listening, I got a lot of listeners that are not law enforcement, but they're um, kind of aspiring and, you know, they're seeing two years in a row, just pure chaos in the world of law enforcement. What, what, how, what and how do we do, recruiting what what kind of incentive can we say hey the job is not dead help <laughs> right and oh man you know honestly it's uh it's crazy there's there's so there's so many reasons you know that that's being put out there why you would not want to join law enforcement uh you know you look at qualified immunity being in question in some places you know, you look at just all the bad, you look at the example that's being set by so, you know, such a small amount of police officers, just a very, very small percentage that's catching all the attention and just drawing all that in. But I have a glass half full uh, 95% of the time. And my thing is, why did somebody join law enforcement 10 years ago? 15 years ago, you know, when things seem more normal, you know, 
12 years ago for me, a lot of people join. Um, they're not joining for the pay. They're not joining for, I don't know, I'm sure there's a list of not good reasons that people have joined, but you know, for me, I, I like to serve, uh, protect and serve. That's, that's, that's what we do. It's the motto. It's the gold. It's the gold standard. It's what we live by. So how has protecting and serving changed any in the past couple of years? I mean, the rules of it's changed. The public perception of it's changed, but public service itself hasn't changed. We have the same goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we have the goal to go to work, you know, come home alive. We also have the goal to make a difference. Right. So, you know, if you're aspiring to be a police officer, what better time in history could you possibly choose to make a difference when a difference is needed? Uh, what's needed is police officers that are ready to set a good example of what a police officer should be. If you have the opinion that police officers aren't, you know, properly doing their job, they're not properly trained and all this kind of stuff. You know, you're all you've done so far is talk about it, talk about the bad without providing, you know, any good without providing a solution. So why not become part of the solution? Mm-hmm. If you're withdrawn from joining law enforcement at this point, because of all the bad, it seems like it would be reasonable, you know, for someone to tell you that, you know, if you don't want to be part of the solution, then don't talk about the problem. That's that's my opinion of it. And that's, you know, my glass half full is I just can't imagine there being a better time, you know, for somebody that truly wants to make a difference mm-hmm. to join the battle of making a difference. And it's not just making a difference in the community or just protecting and serving. It's making a difference with law enforcement in general because there is positive changes need to be made to give us a better public perception. Not everyone's doing their job the way they should do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if someone feels so strongly about what needs to be done or what should change, then they should join and help with the change. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And, you know, you kind of said it a couple times about how law enforcement now has to adapt to what society needs and wants out of law enforcement. And at the end of the day, we're people helping people. We are not superheroes. We are not these like archaic figures that come down and swoop down and fix the world's problems. We need to be able to bend and meld with what society needs and wants. That's the whole idea. And obviously we see that with the laws that are being passed and amended and things like that. And that's what we are. We are the enforcers of those laws. So yeah, you and I, you know, having narcotics backgrounds, we may kind of shy away from these lessened drug charges and drug penalties and stuff. I know it pisses me off, but if that's the way society is going to go, you know, if, if you and I wanted to change that, then we'll, we got to go run for public office and and change the legislature, but that's not our job. Our job is to enforce whatever laws they pass down. So I think everything you just said was absolutely spot on. And even from my own perspective, it's kind of hard to grasp, but that is a perspective that we need to start realizing is that, listen, we have to be more open-minded. We can't be stuck in what the system used to be because it's obvious right. that it's changing and, you know, you're either going to change with it or you're going to get out of it. And it's something that people need to make a decision. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of adaptation needed, you know, and it's, it's hard to come by with some of the, 
older generation in law enforcement. I mean, you know, we still have officers that really does not want to use a computer for anything. (laughs) I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is, you know? Uh, So adaptations are, especially when it comes to, you know, moral standards and things like that. Mm -hmm. And not that those standards have necessarily changed, but, you know, the public perception has made us quite a bit more aware, you know, of our boundaries and some of the boundaries have changed. So it's, you know, it's really uh, near and dear to me that, you know, I, in my position, utilize myself as an instrument to, you know, produce effective change and things like that. And one of the things I've recently been elected to, uh, I elected, appointed to a board for the state of Louisiana where I help make some of the laws of the state as far as uh, drunk driving and things like that. I've been pulling this board to help make decisions for adjustments with the laws. And, you know, so far I've done a couple of Zoom meetings and that's about the extent of it mm-hmm. because everything's been virtual lately. But, you know, I've, I've pretty much put myself in a position to, to make any kind of change that I need because I'll be one to, you know, sit here and tell you that change is needed. And it's kind of empty words for me if I'm not doing something to help, you know, produce that. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, you know, good on you for taking that forward movement and, you know, trying to affect the change that you want. So that's, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, So once again, Daniel Smith, this has been a great conversation. I think we've learned a lot. Um, You know, I really like your perspective on a lot of the things that are happening right now, the contemporary world of policing. Um, You know, as you and I are talking, (laughs) the world is being set on fire and, you know, I don't yeah. want to go too political with it. Um, that's not my goal. But, you know, it's stuff that we really need to start taking into account. Like, how, how are we here a year later starting it all back up again? And it's just, you know, different circumstances, of course. But right. it's stuff that, you know, you obviously in a position of leadership and myself or anybody kind of aspiring to be a leader, uh, leader in law enforcement needs to factor it in so i really appreciate your time for that we're going to wrap up the conversation now um man i thank you for having me today for sure for sure the way i like to wrap it up though uh we do play a quick little game it's kind of more lighthearted than the conversation it's called signal three which for me is a hit and run i'm going to read off these questions so when you answer them don't think too hard about them and just kind of give me the first answer that comes to your mind all right okay i'll try all right here we go. If you could, I uh, no, we'll start differently this time. Uh, where is your dream vacation destination? England. Okay. Have you ever been there? Never have. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Someone, a couple of my followers are from England. They send me pictures all the time. I've been to Ireland. England would definitely be an interesting spot to go to. It just looks so cool. Yeah. In the pictures. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie. Avengers. Okay. Okay. What is one of your most embarrassing bonehead rookie moves? Mm, I would say the probably the most embarrassing. Uh I was getting locked in the trunk of a patrol car, but Ooh. that's about as far as I can take that. <laughs> okay. There's probably a really good story with that one. No, uh, it is. <laughs> um let's see. If you could pick any sandwich in the world, which one would you order? I would say the oven roasted chicken sub. Okay. That's a good one from like Subway? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, what's your favorite police movie? Uh, End of Watch. Okay. Um, what was your high school mascot? Spartan. What's your favorite donut flavor? Uh, Krispy Kreme glazed original. Can't go wrong with the classic. <laughs> what's your favorite police car you've ever driven? Oof. 
That's tough. I'm telling you, I've depends on how we're ranking it, but I I would say probably the the Taurus, the Ford Interceptor car. Okay. It just handles so good. It's yeah. smaller than most of them, but man, it handles good. That's good. I mean, you need that, especially if you're going to be uh, chasing cars and stuff. You need one that can handle well. Yes. All right. We're thinking big moment in your life, you know, uh, bottom of the ninth, fourth quarter, whatever. What is your walk-on song? Mm, not walk-on song. I wasn't ready for this. Um, probably Fuel by Metallica. Okay. Okay. Right. Got a good story for that one, too. Yeah. You want to share it or not? Uh, well, I actually uh, got a video recording of one of my uh, pursuits and had that song on replay. Okay. I had, added it to the recording. <laughs> Very cool. After the court case was already finished. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. Uh, what was your childhood dream job? I'm pretty sure I wanted to go to the oil field for most of my childhood, to be honest with you. Okay. Simply because everyone that I knew that worked there had a bunch of nice things. <laughs> I mean, just to be honest with you, yeah, that no. was about the extent of it. Yeah, that's fine. If you weren't a cop right now, what would you be doing? You know, honestly, it's really hard to say, but I've always, uh, I'd say last several years, looked at education as a potential uh, second career. Okay. I love teaching, instructing, things like that. What level, like? High school, college, well, uh, probably probably high school, but uh, I'd like to get into teaching criminal justice at some point. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So, if you could tell somebody one thing about law enforcement that they may misunderstand, what would it be? Or if you could explain it to them, mm. um, yeah, I have to explain all kinds of things about law enforcement on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> uh, but you know, to me, it seems like uh, use of force is probably the most question thing Mm -hmm. for law enforcement in general. I mean, if I was having to speak to a fairly large crowd that had questions, I would say the majority of them would probably have a use of force question to some extent. Yeah. You know, it's use either use of force, probable cause, something like that. So I would like to go through the use of force continuum with them, you know, or listen to scenarios. I could take scenarios all day long and I could tell them why they're wrong if they have a different (laughs) opinion than what you know, than what we're taught. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about, you know, the modern uh, climate, you know, obviously use of force and the continuum and, you know, why did they use this tactic instead of that tactic? And the the public doesn't know. So I I agree. I think that would be probably the, the most beneficial one for sure. If you could share a meal with one person dead or alive that you've never met, who would it be? And what would you order? I would say, Albert Einstein. Okay. That is just completely off the wall. <laughs> but it's, it's something about the intelligence. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. I, you know, I love school, education, that type of thing. So, you know, I just like to pick his brain. Honestly, uh, what would I order? I would probably order something that wouldn't be very hard to say so that he didn't think that I was much less intelligent. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a steak eater, man. I can, I'll eat steak anytime I can. So if I had to pick something to eat with old Albert, it would probably be a big steak and a sweet potato. Okay. Uh, what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? You know, if I'm listing off piece of advice come from a veteran officers, it's going to be hard to do it without having vulgar language sometimes. <laughs> They've always got something just super Right, right. That was uninspiring, good. honestly. Um, I would say, uh, how's it go? 
Uh, two things that you can't take back as a law enforcement officer is words from your mouth and bullets from your gun. It's very true. And honestly, you know, and that was told to me a long time ago before we was really, you know, monitored, reported and things as much as we are now. And that definitely holds true now in comparison to then. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, your voice is called everywhere. And if you don't think it is, you're probably wrong. Oh, absolutely. You should definitely assume that it is anywhere that you go. Absolutely. Probably even a public restaurant. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's always, I remember when I was in the academy, you know, they always said, you know, every fight, there's always a gun because you've got a gun. Well, the same thing, every incident, there's always a camera because you've got a camera. So, you know, got to always keep that in mind. And again, if you, even if your camera's off, someone's got a camera on you at all times. So that's, that's very true. Uh, What is your favorite uh, late night snack? Ice cream. Yeah. I don't know why. Probably cookie dough, honestly. If I'm going to go unhealthy, I'm just going to jump on into it. There you go. Got to go. But uh, ice cream, if I'm going to pick a late night snack, and I don't do it very often, if I can help it, there is times, of course. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, ice cream or Cheetos. Okay. All right. Very good. That's, that's my thing. Nice. And, your, and our last question for tonight, if you were stuck in a foxhole, who would you want to be trapped with to help you get out? Can it be a fictional character? Yeah, we'll let you do it. Oh, yes. Uh yeah, so you're going to be either Batman or Captain America. Okay, yeah. I mean, you it's can't, can't go wrong with either of them. Then you look at the technological perspective and you want to think Iron Man, but I'm still mad at him right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Chief Daniel Smith, thank you so much for the interview. I really appreciate it, and it, it was a great interview. I appreciate it. It's been an honor, man. I appreciate you. Absolutely, man. You have a good night, all right? You too. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Again, I want to thank Chief Daniel Smith to take a second out of his day. He's uh, obviously a very very busy man with his uh, family and obviously professionally, but he took some time. Uh, we had a conversation, had some issues scheduling it on my end. Uh, you know, life, life is life, man. So, I, again, I appreciate him um, helping me out and uh, stopping in and having the conversation. If you guys want uh, more information about him, if you have more questions, reach out to me, and I will point you in the right direction to speak to him. Um, he is hes a good guy, and uh, and you, you will enjoy talking to him. All right, so I don't really have a lot planned for the end of the episode today. Um, actually, I was planning on just kind of capping it right there, but I did have one bit of inspiration to to end the episode. So for anyone that has never seen the show scrubs, um, it is a show from like 
was it late nineties, early two thousands, or maybe it was just early to mid two thousands. I don't know. Whatever that that uh, that time period. It is a doctor show, but especially the first couple seasons, there was a lot that can be applied to really any profession, but specifically law enforcement. And I know that wasn't the show creator's intention, but I know that when I was going through training, there were a lot of parallels in the first season that I was like, wow, you know, I definitely can relate to this. So I'm going to start by saying that if you haven't seen Scrubs, you should probably go check it out. Very funny. Some of the stuff is a little dated. Most of it's not. They even have a SARS episode, which all the characters go into quarantine, and that's oddly fitting. Um, So yeah, definitely check it out. But kind of to give a quick synopsis just to the transition to the next point the show uh centers around this dr john dorian who is you know he's a brand new doctor and he um kind of lines up with this mentor dr cox and dr cox like any other field training officer to put it in police uh perspectives is very gruff he is uh not very showing of emotion or gratitude um but he does teach just not really the most um, soft-handed approach, which, you know, we don't need that. So this specific bit or scene is an evaluation. In the episode, uh, J.D., Dr. Dorian, has to have his um, attending fill out an evaluation. And instead, Dr. Cox has him fill it out himself, and he thinks it's a joke, so he makes it, you know... Simplistic. And um, at the end of the episode, Dr. Cox delivers his evaluation. And I want to play the clip for you, and then I'm going to talk about it real quick, and then we're going to get out of here. So here we go. And what do you want me to say? That you're great? That you're raising the bar for interns everywhere? I'm cool with that. I'm not going to say that. You're okay. You might be better than that someday, but right now, all I see is a guy who's so worried about what everybody else thinks of him that he has no real belief in himself. I mean, did you even wonder why I told you to do your own evaluation? I I can't think of a safe answer. I just figured... Clam up! I wanted you to think about yourself. And I mean really think. What are you good at? What do you suck at? And then I wanted you to put it down on paper. And not so I could see it, and not so anybody else could see it, but so that you could see it. Because ultimately, you don't have to answer to me, and you don't have to answer to Kelso. You don't even have to answer to your patients, for God's sake. You only have to answer to one guy, newbie, and that's you. There. You are evaluated. Now get the hell out of my sight. You honest to God get me so angry, I'm afraid I just might hurt myself. So as we circle back, I say that because I know it pisses people off, to what I was talking about at the beginning, obviously we are at a point where a lot of things are going to be changing, and that's what we really need to do is just self-evaluate, really take a second and think about, you know, why am I doing this job, what's keeping me here, and make that decision on your own. So I wanted to share that. I thought it was a very good speech. I mean, I've loved scrubs for years and years and years. And I was actually going to make an Instagram post about it, but I figured I can talk a little bit more 
on here. So I did, and I hope you got something out of it. Speaking of got something out of it, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as that is it. Uh, Once again, my guest, Chief Daniel Smith from Louisiana. The music today was Way Down in the Hole by the Five Blind Boys from Alabama, which if you've never seen The Wire, that's another TV show that you haven't seen and you need to. As far as cop shows go, it's top-notch. It really is. You need to check that one out too. Um, So we did that. Then going into the guest today, we had Goodbyes which is the Sublime with Rome cover of the Post Malone song. Then we had Fuel by Metallica. And we're going to end with Paradise by Dave House. And that's going to be it for our episode today, guys. Listen, I need you to do me a favor. Go to my store, 10-8-memes.equidecwid.com, and place an order. That's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm trying to clear out all the merch that I have here. I don't know if things are going to get reordered or not. I was going to, but you know, sales kind of stalled, and now I don't know what I'm going to do. So let's uh, let's work on getting this stuff out of here, and I can make a decision from there, at least for the next thing. Our next episode, I don't have scheduled just yet as far as who's going to be on it. Um, April, you know, life, like I said, is kind of weird, so things are... Um, not getting scheduled the way I want them to. I do have a couple calls out there. I just need to really get people to pick a date, and then we'll do that. I've got a lot of options coming up to you guys. I can't wait to share it with you. Um, once again, follow me on Instagram if you don't already, 108 underscore memes. And I've got memes there, you know. I've also got music as far as my playlist on Spotify, merch like I talked about. We're on Facebook, 108 memes, and I, and I think that's it. We're going to have a New Jersey Boys episode coming up shortly. I don't know when, though. We're just, again, everyone's busy, and things are going to get really busy, so I don't know what's going to happen. But until next time, everybody, stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you next week. 10-8, out! Full of smog out